This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. And if you're going to stay in with us, let me invite you to open your Bible to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis 35. We have Bibles that are provided on the sides uh, here uh, in sections, and if you'd like to grab one of those, you're welcome to. You'll be helped just to have a copy of God's Word in front of you. You'll find Genesis 35 on page 27 of those books there. We'd love for you to grab one and follow along. I'm going to read the first 15 verses of Genesis 35 and we'll pray together. This is God's word. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all those who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is the land in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, And Jacob set up a pillar in that place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken to him, Bethel. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would come to us now and open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in your law. We pray that our lives would be submitted to it. And if there are inconsistencies, Lord, show them to us. If there are idols, Lord, may we see them, repent, and bury them. Lord, we pray that you would do a work in your people. Make us strong in Christ. Make us more and more aware of your love and grace to us. 
Remind us that you answer us in the day of distress, that you're with us wherever we, wherever we go, whatever we go through. So Lord, we pray you'd speak to us now through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hear the voice of the psalmist in Psalm 106, verse 1. He says, Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. We've come together this morning to do that, to praise the Lord. Is your heart there this morning? By God's grace, is it there? Or do you need to even now preach to yourself, to your own soul, and ask, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 42, verses 5 and 6. Consider Frederick Lehman's attempt to get his mind around particularly the love of God from his 1917 hymn. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The wandering child is reconciled by God's beloved son. The aching soul again made whole and priceless pardon won. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong it shall forever endure. The saints and angels song. Is that your song this morning? Even when you come and you find you would confess that my soul is indeed aching. I come looking for purpose in the darkness around me. As I'm aware this week particularly of abuse and murder and death. Is there a love that could reach even here? To the lowest hell? We've seen some pretty low points this week. Discouraging, saddening, confusing things. Dave, I'm so thankful for your prayer, brother. We've seen evil on display right before our eyes. And, and so we look to truth. We look to scripture. And providentially last week, we looked at Genesis 34 and saw there evil. The evil of rape and violation of Jacob's daughter Dinah. And then the murderous rampage of her brothers in pursuit of vengeance. And Jacob's passivity, him not doing anything really about it. We saw no prayers, no promises, no calling out to God in chapter 34 of Genesis. And so we, we focused on God's justice and vengeance against all evil. And the hope that comes from knowing our sympathetic and gracious high priest, our gracious Savior Jesus Christ. And so today we turn the page and begin this walk through the darkness to the dawn from Genesis 34 to 35 through some confusion to clarity, despair to the opening up of our hearts to God. Chapter 35 of Genesis is like the culmination of Jacob's life. His story is going to go on, but this is sort of his, his, the summary of his life. The closing, the camera is going to go away from him and, and turn over to the life of his children. And this really does fit Jacob's kind of summary. There's family strife, check. Uh, there's an egregious sin and death, check. 
But we also find a reaffirming, pursuing, unstoppable grace. The grace of God at work in Jacob's life. A grace that is greater than all of his sin. That grace is going to be the focal point of our sermon uh, and of the chapter uh, this morning. And I just pray it would just be a hope-giving grace to you, no matter where you are today. So here it is up front. The main point of our sermon is this. You will find joy-sustaining, life-empowering, sin-killing, death-conquering grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Joy-sustaining, life-empowering, sin-killing, death-conquering grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to know that grace. I want to frame the passage with three descriptions of grace that we'll see as we go through. So if you're taking notes, here they are up front. Number one, we'll see the grace of God in war. The grace of God in war, verses 1 to 7. And, and here I don't mean war between nations, but a war on our sin. Grace is the fuel that drives us to put sin to death, especially idolatry. Secondly, we'll see uh, the grace of God in faith in verses 9 to 15. And here we're going to look at God's promises that are reiterated and affirmed to Jacob. And then finally, we'll consider the grace of God in death, verses 16 and following, as we see the deaths of several family members and the summary of Jacob's life. Death is real. The Bible continuously reminds us of that, but it is not the end. The promises of God remain for the people of God. Death gives way to life. So in all of this, I just pray that our eyes would be set now on living our lives, these short lives, to the full for God's glory. So let's look at our first section, the grace of God in war. And as I mentioned, we're we're talking about here a spiritual war, not a military battle, but we have just seen a brutal massacre In chapter 34, really a war crime that was committed by Jacob's sons, Levi and Simeon. And and they were incensed not only at Shechem's rape and abduction of their sister Dinah, but Jacob's non-response to it. Their non-admission of guilt. As we said last week, their anger was right, but their actions were wrong and sinful. Desecrating the sign of circumcision, then killing all the males in the city. That chapter closed, if you remember, with Jacob rebuking them, not for what they had done, that they had sinned against God, but because they had endangered Jacob's own life. Jacob, the deceiver. Jacob, the heel grabber, the plotter, the blessing stealer. Jacob, the self-absorbed. He has systematically blown up his family by favoring some over others, by not trusting God to bring about his promises in his ways. He hasn't protected his children or instructed his children as he ought. He's made some progress. Yes, it's been one step forward and three steps back. But he's still Jacob. And beloved, don't miss this. It is to this man that God comes. It is to this man that God speaks There in verse 1, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. I think sometimes when we read the Bible, 
We just bounce from one chapter to the next. I do this, we jump in, we parachute in, and we read, oh, God's speaking here to Jacob apart from its context, but we need to stop and linger over the picture of God's love and grace here to Jacob and be encouraged and be convicted and be amazed at the love of God that he is still pursuing this guy. He hasn't deserted him. Beloved, there is hope then. If there's hope for Jacob, there is hope for me, and there is hope for you. I don't know, you, you, some of you have been praying for the ministry of uh, the basketball open gym that's happening on Tuesday night, so I want to continue to ask you to pray for that ministry. I want to pray especially for Bart and Tim as they lead that group. It's growing and it's been more encouraging. I came on Tuesday night and just gave my testimony, and, and, and that, my testimony goes back into those same years when I'm a 18, 19-year-old and completely, utterly lost. And I'm looking at these young men, and I don't know their spiritual condition, but I am remembering at that moment where I was and how God, through sheer grace, opened the eyes of a dead man, an evil dead man, to show me Christ. And I, all I wanted to do is just to, 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 to open their eyes, and I can't. All I can do is pray and ask that God would do that as we share the gospel. Pray that that ministry would continue, and it would be faithful, and that God would make an impact. Notice that God, here in verse 1, initiates this grace. He initiates it, and that's how it works every time. He takes the initiative and comes to us. If he doesn't, it doesn't happen. We don't come. He comes to us. That's what he does with Jacob here again. And in this passage, there are several, we might call, callbacks to to Jacob's life. Things that's happened in the past that all kind of come back here in chapter 35. It's like his journey comes full circle. Uh, Sam Amadi said this would be like Frodo coming back to the Shire after he's gone through that whole journey through the the, the tale of the Lord of the Rings and he is now back in the same place but he is a different person. That's what's happening with Jacob. It's God's call of Jacob here that we see in chapter 35 all over again. And it reminds us that he has made this vow back at Bethel and he calls him back to that vow. Back to what he has said. In case he had forgotten, Bethel is where he first got appeared to him, revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother Esau after all that line of deception. And for the first time now in Scripture, God is calling one of the patriarchs to build an altar to him. It's an appropriate marker of what God has done and a place of worship. Just remember what, what Jacob prayed back in chapter 28. You don't have to turn there, but this is what happened. We read that in verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz. At the first, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and he will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house and all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth. That's as if all that prayer, all that reality comes back now to Jacob in this moment. God has done exactly what he said. He would do. He's answered his prayer to the T, despite all of his sin and his rebellion and failure. Great is your faithfulness, O God. There is grace upon grace in Jacob's life. How's he going to respond to that? Well, we see there in verse 2. Look with me. 
So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. This is the kind of leadership that we wanted to see from Jacob all along, isn't it? We wanted to see it earlier in the story as he sat back and watched these things happen right before him. But, but not now. Now he's calling for the idols, the false foreign gods. Does it surprise you that there are idols among the people of God? Does it surprise you that Jacob knows that there are idols among the people of God? We remember that Rachel stole some of her father's household gods when she ran away with Jacob, so perhaps those are still around. Also, we remember that after the sons of Jacob killed all the males in Shechem, we saw last week in chapter 34, they plundered the city, which likely meant they took all the valuable things, including their gods. Their their man-made, likely gold-plated gods and earrings. And uh, before you start taking off your earrings, ladies, one commentator writes, These earrings were not everyday jewelry, but amulets and talismans engraved with pagan symbols. They're marks of pagan worship and idolatry. They had taken these things and now were contaminated by them. They were made unclean. They had welcomed them into their daily life. And remember who Moses is writing to, the wilderness generation. And they're very familiar with this call to holiness. First commandment, Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. It's a consistent call, particularly on the people of Israel, throughout the salvation history. Put away your idols, worship the true God alone, and purify yourself. They are unclean. Sin makes us unclean, and it leads to death which defiles us. And and so they have been defiled, in a sense, corporately by this sin through Shechem. They have corrupted the sign of circumcision. They have killed other human beings and then plundered their dead bodies. So they can't just now waltz into Bethel with that sin on their conscience and blood-stained hands and garments ready to, to worship the living God. It doesn't work that way. The psalmist says this in Psalm 24, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. That's kind of like Jacob's resume, isn't it? The resume for him and his family. Clean hands? No. Pure heart? No. Lift up your soul to what is false. We have all these false gods. Swear deceitfully of, yeah, that's his name. So that rules Jacob out and his family. And if you're honest with yourself, if I'm honest with myself, it rules me and you out as well. They needed to be made clean. Worship of the living God requires and assumes purification and preparation. And so typical purification under the old covenant would include bathing the body, washing one's clothes, changing into clean clothes, shaving the body, etc. You can find these things laid out in Leviticus 14. There'd also be a need of of, of an offering of some sort to atone for sin. Nevertheless, Jacob calls for this 
purification and repentance, which is a direct 180 degree turn for him in the right direction. And the people follow. Verse 4. Look there. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So this is good and right. And if you're saying, well, what does that mean he hid them? Uh, well, we all know there's a difference between hiding something and burying something. I think the word there could go either way in Hebrew. Um, a better, I think the NIV gets it right here. I think it's more interpretive in the way that they translate it, but they translate it as that Jacob buried the idols. The, so the, the false gods are being buried. In other words, they're being shown to be useless, lifeless, dead after meeting with the living God in comparison to the living God. And, and so the people accept this, they repent, they go through this cleansing and renewal because they know that in their time of crisis, these earrings are not going to help them. The, these gold-plated little, little, little gods are not going to help them. They want to know the God of Jacob who fights their battles for them. And that's what happens in verse 5. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Everybody's upset with Israel right now. Right? This is a very dangerous thing for Jacob to move and to go around in Canaan after what he did in chapter 34 to Shechem. He's a stench to all the peoples. They're ready to go after him, but there's just one problem. God is with them. And he caused a great dread to fall on them, and he protected them. Jacob's fears were unfounded. God was with him, and this is not going to be the first time we see God intentionally, clearly fighting battles for his people, that, that he might receive the glory. In verses 6 and 7, then you see Jacob make it into Bethel, unharmed by God's grace, and there he renames the place El Bethel, which I think is interesting. It just means something like the God of Bethel, where Bethel means the house of God. Maybe the focus was more on the place. Now Jacob is more focused on the God of the place. You're the God of this place, the God of Bethel. And so he builds an altar and worships his God, the God of grace. Beloved, may we do the same as we consider God's grace in our life. As those who have been purified, made clean through Jesus. Uh, there was a time um, years ago where I was having some conversations with some Muslim friends and I went into uh, a mosque and uh, was just going to see what it was like. And I went into during the time of prayer and one of the things that just stood out to me most, more than anything else was the washing that took place before. Uh, and so there were basins set around kind of in the lobby that you were to wash. And there were rooms, shower rooms that were there for you to cleanse yourself, change your clothes, and, and, and walk in to worship. Now, I was expected. I was a guest. I didn't have to go through that process. There was kind of like a, a line. I called it the unclean line. And I stood beside behind that and just kind of observed but, but, I, but I watch, and I just want to encourage you not to critique that too quickly because at least there's reverence there, supposed reverence there. Because often I feel like we come into worship without thinking much about who it is that we're worshiping. There's no washing of water, no shower, no change of clothes that can make you presentable before the living God. 
to wash away our impurity. There's nothing we can do to cleanse ourselves, but we desperately need to be made clean. And we're only made clean by putting ourselves under the fountain filled with blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins. Only when sinners are plunged beneath that flood do they lose all of their guilty stains. Friend, have you been washed in the blood of Jesus? It's only that blood, it's only that grace that can prepare you to know and worship the living God. The one who came and died in your place, who took the punishment you deserved for your sins. He went to the unclean realm of death and came out victorious. He rose bodily from the grave three days later. Turn from your sins. Put your trust in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, your King. And when we do that, we know that Christ has killed the power of sin in our life. And then he calls us to take every moment captive and attack, mortify our sin. So the grace of God enables our war on sin. Like Jacob and his family, we must bury our idols. Don't hide them for later. There's a big difference. When something's dead, we we bury it. We don't intend to go back to it. But when we hide something, we do intend to go back to it. We know where to find it. We know where we put it. No one else does. Beloved, with our sin, we must take a no-holds-barred, no-prisoners-no-mercy approach. So to say to pornography and lust and greed and gluttony and escapism and pride and bitterness and our sinful anger, you are dead and you are my enemy and I am going to kill you in my life. I am going to root you out of my life. I'm not going to play with you. I'm not going to dabble with you. I'm going to declare war on you. Christ has slain you, and now I declare war on you. I love 1 Peter 1.18. He's talking to Christians, and he says, You were ransomed from feudal ways inherited from your forefathers by the precious blood of Christ. Not just that you were saved, but you're also saved from those ways ransomed out of those ways that you used to to, to be characterized by. If you want to go to something that's edifying for your soul for this, go to John Owen. Go to John Owen and just sit there and read uh, Mortification of Sin and be encouraged. He says, Let faith look on Christ in the gospel as he is set forth dying and crucified for us. Look on him under the weight of our sins, praying, bleeding, dying, Bring him in that condition into your heart by faith. Apply his blood so shed to your corruptions. Do this daily. He says in another place, Let not man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lusts. We walk over the bellies of our lusts when they are dead and we're burying them in the ground. Paul says this to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt, is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. I'm not going to go into that too much more, but in a couple of weeks, Sam Webb is going to preach that text, and the text, the verses after that, I would just encourage you to join us and pray 
as we walk through that text together. Grace leads us to mortify our sin and bury our idols. What needs to die in your life? What do you need to stop feeding and coddling by God's grace and start killing? Are you fighting this war? Are you drifting? Are you hiding or are you burying? What needs to be put off that you might put on the new self in Christ? So the grace of God enables war. That's number one. Let's think about a second aspect of God's grace, the grace of God in faith. I'm going to pass over verse 8 for now, come back to it in a, in a second. But as we walk through this section, I want you to notice some of the connection Moses makes for us, especially back to Genesis 12. So it's there that God called Jacob's grandfather um, out of his homeland and paganism to follow him, or he called Abram. And in a sense, this chapter connects Jacob to that same calling, the same covenant, and same covenant-keeping God. And so look at verse 9 with me. God appeared to Jacob again when he came to Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Now, this is, again, just God's amazing, pursuing grace on display. He appears to Jacob again and blesses him. Jacob doesn't deserve this kind of love, this kind of pursuit, but God does, and God doesn't let him go. In fact, he reminds him of who he is. He's already changed his name, if you remember, back in chapter 32. That sounds familiar. That's happened, and the repetition here, not only is it emphasized for us, the reader, it's got to have a stark impact on Jacob. In the last chapter, Verse 34, he's referred to essentially only as Jacob in the whole chapter. He's living like the old Jacob. We talked about how he is both Jacob and Israel as we are sinner and saint. But here we see God not relating to him according to his sin, but according to his grace. God is saying to him, this is who you are. Be who you are. I've made you Israel. Be Israel. And also be really clear on who I am, Jacob. Verse 11. Maybe. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I give to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land of your offspring to the land of your offspring after you. So Jacob, not only are you Israel, you're Israel on the authority of El Shaddai, God Almighty. And God Almighty reiterates here the promises made to Abraham in Genesis 12. The land that was promised to Abraham and Isaac, I'm going to give to you. Verse 12, a nation and a company of nations is going to come from you, including kings. All in the context of your this blessing that I am giving you. So we have land, we have seed, and we have blessing. But he goes even further back, doesn't he? He says, be fruitful and multiply. That's Genesis 1, Genesis 1, the creation mandate. It's as if Jacob is a new Adam, and God is saying he's not finished with the human race. His plans are going to continue. His promises are now secure. Just like Abram became Abraham, now Jacob is Israel. 
Abraham was promised that kings would come from him, and now they're going to come from Jacob as well. And we're going to see the, the ramifications of that fairly soon. In the Old Testament, we know that Benjamin's descendant, Saul, will be the first king of Israel, but he would be succeeded fairly quickly by a Bethlehemite from Bethlehem, a young shepherd from the tribe of Judah named David. And from King David would eventually come his greater son, the true king of Israel, Jesus Christ. It's these promises and faith in the promises that propel the story on, that keep Jacob and his sons going. Beloved, look to the promises. He continues here in verse 13. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Again, we have some repetition here, I think, for emphasis. We've already seen him name this place Bethel. And Jacob anoints this pillar of stone as if to reaffirm what's happened, to come full circle and be reminded now of its name, the house of God. Later, we're going to see God's people instructed to anoint the tabernacle, the temporary house of God, with oil to make it holy. And then much later, God will come in the flesh. He will tabernacle with us, among us, and he would be baptized and anointed by the Holy Spirit. We read that in Acts chapter 10. And of course, we know that as God's people, we ourselves now are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Beloved, believe the promises. Look to the promises. God's grace comes to us and invites us to believe, to receive, to understand his faithfulness. When in ancient times they shall pass away and human thrones of kingdoms fall, when those who hear refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call, God's love so sure shall still endure, all measureless and strong. Grace will resound the whole earth round, the saints and angels' song. The blessing of God comes to undeserving Jacob, and he responds in worship. And it's in that same grace that he's going to need to respond when things aren't so good, when things fall apart, and they do fall apart. As we're going to see here in our last section, number three, the grace of God and death. The grace of God and death. There are really four burials in this passage, if you count the burial of the idols. That happens at the beginning. When we see the details for the second burial back in verse 8, let's go back there now. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth. If you're looking at an ESV, you'll see a footnote there that just says Alan Bakuth means something like oak of weeping. I think it's odd, and I think we ought to, we're supposed to think it's odd that Moses would mention the death and burial of Rebekah's nurse and not Rebekah herself. That begs the question, why don't we hear anything about Rebekah and her passing? And perhaps Moses is making a subtle point, pointing us back to her actions in deceiving her husband, Isaac, and her son, Esau. We don't know for sure, but generally it's silent about her. But things are not going to get any easier. Look at verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel when they were still some distance from Epaphra. Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. 
And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. So Jacob's love of his life, his dear, beloved Rachel, is dying. Death and childbirth it was very, very common, incredibly common in these days. And we learn here that her labor was hard. And so in an effort to encourage her, her midwife who's helping her says, Do not fear, you, you have another son. And if you remember, this is an answer to um, Rachel's prayer. After, if you remember, after such a long season of barrenness, she gave birth to Joseph back in chapter 30. And then right after that, she, she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. And that prayer is answered. But it's as if it comes at the cost of her life. Another one of Rachel's statements that you might remember comes from those days when she was still barren and said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Genesis 30, verse 1. So it's as if she exchanged that, this gift for her very life. And it just seems to have come so quickly. No one expects this to happen. I think we, we live and move in a, in a, with an expectation that we're going we're gonna to kind of be okay and tomorrow's going to come and next week's going to come and next month's going to come and we're going to do these other things. And I'm sure that's the way Rachel was thinking. But just like that, her time had come. And she was dying. And this is what happens in her kind of last moments. We see it there in verse, uh, pick it up in verse 18. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Epaphra, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb, it is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. So in her dying moment, she names her son Ben-Oni, which means something like son of my sorrow or could be son of my strength. I think given the context, that son of my sorrow makes more sense. But Jacob officially names him Benjamin, which means something like son of my right or son of my right hand, a favored son, which I think in some ways, is going to, both of those names are going to be appropriate for Benjamin, given the story as we pick it up in, Joseph, in the kind of Joseph cycle and that narrative is, that's coming up soon. But here we we're faced with another death, another funeral, another reminder that this life is fleeting and that there are no guarantees. Whether you're here this morning and you're young or old, whether you're a parent or not, a child, whether you're rich or poor, are you ready, unless the Lord comes, for death? Are we living for something greater than ourselves? Or are we living as if this life is all that there is? I think that's the way Moses portrays Reuben in verse 22. Look there. It's like this interruption in the story. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. So just to be clear, this is, this is the sin of incest. The Bible wholeheartedly denounces this and and the, under the law, it's punishable by death. And so why is this here? Why would Reuben do this? And I think it's probably more than just 
his lust or a, a crime of passion, uh, first of all, remember, step back, that, that there is a serious tension between the sons of Leah and the sons of Rachel. We saw that last, last week. And so Reuben probably is thinking that Rachel is now out of the picture. And so her servant, Bilhah, would now potentially slide into the most favored wife role uh, of Jacob. So by the way, if, you have, if this is a problem, you know you've, you've messed up a long time ago with having multiple wives, but we, we won't go there again. So he ensures now that that's never going to happen by, by sleeping with her and making sure that David knows, Israel hears of it, or, or Jacob knows. So Bilhah is, is, is now basically considered to be like a, like a living widow, just like David's concubines were when Absalom defiled them in 2 Samuel. Off limits. And just like Absalom, Reuben has political motives here. He's, he's essentially laying claim to the authority in the family, saying to his father, you're no longer in charge. He's not only committing the sin of adultery, but dishonoring his father. The Bible's very, very clear about kind of um, assessing his actions. We read in 1 Chronicles 5.1 that because Reuben defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. So he disqualified himself from ruling and receiving the inheritance of the firstborn. In Jacob's dying words, he may not say anything now. He's, all we know is that he hears of it. But with his dying words in Genesis 49, he gives Reuben kind of this anti-blessing. He says, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch, Genesis 49.3. Just another example of the unfortunate sin of Jacob coming back home to roost. Be sure that your sin will find you out. Unfortunately, the last notes that we have here played in the song of Jacob's life are pretty harsh. They're pretty flat and ugly. But there is a melody in the background of God's grace, if you listen carefully. If you remember the way the story began, the promises that were made to Abraham, and we learn immediately that his wife is barren. And then finally she can conceive, and there's one son, the son of promise. And then promise is made to Isaac, and he has a, a barren wife. And then two sons. In comparison to all the others that, that are having multiple sons, and their, their families are growing, leaps and bounds, only now do we begin to see the fulfillment of God's promise. A nation shall come from you. A nation with 12 tribes. And those tribes are listed there in verses 22 to 26 and following. And I think they're, they're listed in the kind of listed by mother. And we won't read through all of those, but just, just notice that, that, the, that Leah is first. Her sons are listed first. Perhaps Moses sees Leah as Jacob's true wife. And if you're keeping score on Leah's sons, we can now scratch off Reuben, who was the firstborn, as potential son of the promise, the, the, the heir. And we can scratch off Simeon and Levi for their killing spree as having any real future in the kingdom. They've disqualified themselves. But the very next name on that list is the name of Judah. That's another story altogether. 
There's something very special about him and the one that will come from him and from his line. More to come on that soon. But first, Moses wants to record one more death, one more burial. Look at verse 27. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kirith Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died. And he was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. I just think it's interesting that right after Jacob has been deceived and dishonored by one of his sons, he goes to have this last meeting with his dad, who he had deceived and dishonored. He comes full circle for Jacob. Again, he's back with his dad. He's back with his brother. His mother is likely passed at this point. And Isaac dies, we read, full of years, 180 years. And Esau and Jacob come back together to bury him. The brothers who have long been apart come back together, reconciled to bury their father. It really just points to the end of this chapter in Jacob's life and that we're moving to the next chapter that's going to focus on his sons, particularly one son, Joseph. Friends, life is a vapor. Death comes to us all. But the grace of God gives us the ability and the strength to face death with a living hope, a hope of resurrection. Our hope is in Jacob's greater son. Benjamin was called a son of sorrow. Jesus was referred to as the man of sorrows. According to Isaiah, Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men would hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he was born, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Friend, Jesus purifies us. His blood makes us white as snow. He brings us into peace with God. He gives us robes of righteousness to replace our filthy rags. He's the king of kings. From the line of Jacob, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he calls us now to be fruitful and multiply, not just physically, but spiritually through the multiplication of the gospel all around us. That's what Paul uses that terminology in Colossians 1 6. The gospel would be bearing fruit and increasing. I pray that the gospel would do that at UPBC. Bear fruit and increase as we cling to the precious promises that he's given us as we look and and think on the grace that we've been shown, as we fight sin, even look death in the face and say, where is your sting? This is a joy-sustaining, life-empowering, sin-killing, death-conquering grace. Could we ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every one a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forever endure. The saints and the angels' song. Amen. This is the love of God. He is good, 
for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. We thank you, Lord, for the hope that we find in you. Lord, we pray that you would, by your grace, lift up our eyes, lift up our heads. Lord, we pray that we would, because of the grace we've received in Christ, because of the purification, that we would declare war on our sin and we would live holy lives that would point back to you, point back to the change that's happened in us in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would bring healing to those who are hurting, comfort to those that need it, particularly now in these days. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.